millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, welcome to the 286th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Austin Kress and Delete Berkowitz. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Diana Oliferova on the podcast. She is a cinematographer that was the, the DP on We Are Lady Parts, a Peacock original, a really fun show about a band that's shot in London. It's kind of like an angsty teen. I think they're... There's like they're Muslim, an and there's a nerd. Band. There's like a good girl who's a classical guitarist who falls in with a hardcore crew of angsty musicians. Yeah, so there's that angle to it as well. A little bit of odd couple uh, mixed in. So fun. yeah, it, it's a beautiful show. Obviously, very successful. The director has gone on to direct Doctor Who. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. That's exciting. Yeah, Dang. Um, the DP. This was her first show, Diana. And then she did another show, and now she just uh, is working on an HBO show. So, hey, all these people just uh, being successful while Matt and I sit here and talk to them. Well, uh, also, I think it's worth pointing out that they shot a pilot, a proof of concept that's available on YouTube. Hopefully, we are thoughtful enough to put it up on the website. But that proof of concept is what got them the show and launched their careers. So you might even say that they just shot it. Yeah. I think you would say that. And uh, we did say that. Yeah, it's interesting because Diana kept referring to it as a pilot, but it was, it's like a 10 minute proof Mm -hmm. of content. I mean, on IMDb, it says it's a short, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So meant meant to sell the show, certainly, but, um, you know, it was unclear as to who funded it, which I think is maybe the million dollar question. Regardless, though, we had a really great conversation with her. We talk a lot about the different ways in which you can add a little chaos to a shoot in a good way, to a little visual variety, you know? Um, and Diana really has like a, a cool approach to that and kind of just making sure that they're making huge, big, bold choices. And it was really uh, inspiring and reminded me of how fun filmmaking is, which is nice. You know, like yeah, we were yeah. really into the creativity of it all. And so it, I uh, left the conversation motivated, which is great. I guess yeah, that's I kind love, of uh, the point of the show. I love how she thinks about lenses and composition and color and lighting and even things like sharpness in terms of how they relate to the story and characters and just, you know, using visuals to tell the story, which is always a great thing that you have a DP that thinks about story, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really fun to have DPs on the show. I I feel like it's a thing that, you know, for a long time we didn't do. And now I feel like we've some of my favorite conversations are with DPs. 
So yeah, you know, once every couple months, you can talk to a cinematographer. We've had no production designers. We yeah, haven't had a costume sense. designer on since uh, 2005 or whenever we started this show. <laughs> so yeah, we got to balance some things, but hopefully uh, you guys get something out of this conversation. I know we did. But before we talk to Diana, we're going to talk actually about another topic, which is also crew related. And I believe, and honestly, I'm, I'm not super educated on this stuff, so I could be saying things incorrectly, which I apologize, but I believe IATSE is mulling over a potential strike. There's been a lot of stuff, at least what I've been seeing on social media and hearing around town from my friends and things is that people are sick of working so hard, mm-hmm. which sick is and interesting. Tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's coming on the heels of COVID where nobody worked for a while. And I think there's been a big stress on mental health recently. I apologize for the loud noise in the background. There is some yard work that is happening outside uh, right next to me. Anyway, so I feel like coming off of not working off of all this talk about mental health, everyone in the film business is like, hey, uh, we've been doing like 16 hour days on these low budget music videos and people are literally getting injured and then going to sleep for two hours, waking up, driving two hours, working another 16 hour day, carrying heavy lights like uh, this isn't cool anymore. Why don't we work like normal people and do 10 hour days instead of 12 hours as the standard? For the record, is still so much longer than most people's jobs. Yeah, then you're nine to five, eight yeah, hours. Nine to day. five. Yeah. 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 But no one really works nine to five, right? That's true. That's true. Not um, in America. In but, other but, countries. But also like a grip can't like be on his phone working, you know, at the kids' soccer game or whatever. You know, like film work takes a hundred percent of your attention and physical presence in a way that other jobs don't necessarily. But still has all of the homework of other jobs. Uh, not to preach to the choir, but so I know that you were involved in some Twitter conversations about this, Matt. But what is your personal take on the ten-hour day versus the twelve-hour day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, look, it's all complicated, and I think it's worth stating at the top. I don't know where you land on this, Oren. You know, I have a a lot of economic anxiety about a strike coming, but as soon as you think about it for a second and and look at you know i don't know if you follow the instagram account ia stories you know people are are they're crying out for help and so it's a thing that you can't really ignore and is is unjust and so you know i'm worried about things but um but we got to fix it you know and so the corporations are really twisting twisting the knife on our friends and that's um and us um, but, but more importantly, I think there's a lot of hard labor that makes me really, really worried for them. So, uh, anyway, sorry, not to, to get too, too dark, 10 hours versus 12 hour days. I, you know, I have really mixed feelings about it and here's why. And, and Jen McGowan, who was a previous guest has a, has a really great, uh, conversation going on Twitter about it. So the, just to kind of set the table for people, the difference between a 10 and a 12 is that you don't officially break for lunch on a 10 hour day. You're, you have, uh, a working lunch, right? French yeah, hours. That's a French hours. But you can yeah, yeah. do a regular 10. Like that's not a... It. You could oh, also part, do a 10-hour day where you uh, just hire people on 10 hours, right? Sure. Like you yeah, show yeah. up at 8, you have lunch, whatever, at 2, 
for an hour and then you're back on the clock. Right? I misunderstood the question. Seven. Yeah, yeah. You just mean literally not French hours, just doing a town hour shoot day. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what we did on um, See You Next Christmas, the feature that I produced. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's it's hard because it is better for everyone. And I think that we were working that crew really hard. And if we worked them for a full 12, because there's always extra people who have to hang out later, right? Like in that in that case, in the case of that film, I was the one closing up shop. I was the one driving the van back to uh, back to lock up all of that stuff. So like, so I was experiencing it firsthand. I wasn't going to ask a crew member to do that, partially because I couldn't afford it. So ten hours really means twelve hours for plenty of people, and so twelve hours really means fourteen or sixteen hours for plenty of people, right? Which is really where the problems really get exacerbated. The trick is that a producer, and in this case it was me, has to know the difference between 10 and 12 hours and what you can get done in that amount of time. So if you add another day, which is I think Jen McGowan's point on her Twitter, basically for every five days you need to add a sixth day if you're talking about a difference of 10 or 12 hour workdays, basically. Yeah, and I mean that kind of seems to apply mostly to TV Right. I mean, I guess a big budget feature also, but like, I guess since I work primarily in commercials, I think about my own situation or if you're doing a short film or if you're doing independent feature and it's not like you can just randomly add more days, more shoot days, then it's like, what can you get done in 10 hours versus 12 hours? And all all the sets I work on, when they say 12 hours, they do not mean, you know, hey, we show up at eight, we start shooting at nine and we get to keep shooting till nine, you know, before we wrap 12 hours means we show up at eight load in we yeah. load in we're not shooting till ten thirty, right and then we have to stop for lunch at 2 p.m or whenever six hours after we showed up and then we have an hour so now it's like 3 p.m and then we have to basically shoot for like another four hours and then we have need two hours to wrap and if there's like you built something or set or something the art needs to wrap everyone needs to be in and out within that 12 hours so you don't get that much shooting time you get like eight hours of shooting time if you're lucky and then and you know you stop down for lunch for an hour which kind of ruins all your momentum in the middle of the day so obviously it depends the two days shoot and you have come in and everything's already lit and ready to go you get a lot more time but in general then if you change it to a 10 hour day now you get like effectively six or maybe seven hours of shooting time it's really hard to shoot something good in that amount of time especially if you have a one-day shoot and right and i guess to me like the other i i just did a 10-hour shoot it was a canadian company production company and they were like yeah we hire everyone on 10s that's what we do in canada even though the shoot was in la they put hired everyone on 10 and we were having trouble with when the sun rises and what direction everything to fit everything in the 10 hours and i was like why don't you just hire everyone on 12 that's like the normal standard way to do it in la and then all this stuff has come up about 10 versus 12 hours. As a director, you want to you want time. That's like your number one thing that you want, right? That said, I understand as a crew, you know, you want to go home and have dinner and get some sleep and just have a normal life. So, to me like whether it's 10 hours or 12 hours, the most important thing is to like not waste your crew's time, right? To value their time. So, showing up not ready is really annoying for the crew or like let's shoot a version like this and a version like this or wait changing your mind like halfway through them setting something up is really frustrating so to me like your job as the director in prep is to make sure that you're using because you're so well prepared you're using your time so efficiently on set that the crew isn't just hanging out wondering 
why they're wasting so much time or feeling like they're doing other things. And part of my frustrations in directing commercials is that the client and the agency, oh, legal legal department asked us to do a version like this. And, you know, we want to do a version with the Pepsi can, a version without the Pepsi can. You know, like, let's do, they want to do all these versions of the same thing. And you know, you're only going to use one of them. And you you do it and you're like, that's great. Let's move on. And then they're like, oh, hold on, hold on. They want to just do a whole, one more thing where we don't say this word or they don't move like this or you, without the camera move. And if you're a crew member, you're like, why are we shooting this one line over and over and over a hundred times? And now we're working for 14 hours because we're doing this for every single take. And so... Right, that's how I, you ever talk to a crew member about improv? <laughs> no, I never do improv because, yeah, yeah. Of, because yeah. of this. Because right. I don't like to waste people's time. And that's why on sets, people are like, Orin, they're just asking you to do, just do another take for this. Just do another take for the 9 by 16 that's framed a little looser. It's, do another take... And to me, it's like, well, I did my work before the shoot to know what we need to shoot. And now you don't, you haven't done your work, legal department or, you know, agency or this. So you want me to shoot every option for you to have in post. And guess what? The editor is just going to take the last take and that's what they're going to use. They're not even going to look through all these options. So I'm like kind of been struggling internally in my mind about this 12 versus 10 hour day, because of course you'd want a 10 hour day. Hey, I'd love a six hour day. I could shoot a 30-second commercial in six hours easily if I get to make the final call on what we're shooting. Mm-hmm. Or if the final call has just already been made. Yeah, but then you see like people on posting on Instagram, oh, I love this director, you know. Uh, she always she only makes us shoot for 10 hours, or he always knows exactly what he wants, so we're never wasting time, and so we're only shooting for eight hours, and this is the perfect director. And it's like, of course. I, that's how I would be if I could be. But like I have people over my shoulder telling me I need 45 other takes. And I'm like, well, this actor's been sitting here for ten hour, for three hours. And I don't think we need them, but we're making them wait here. And then some producer's like, who cares? We pay them for the day. Like, let them just sit there. And it's like that attitude of like not valuing other people's time that I think perpetuates this entire industry and causes this problem. And I think if you work on an indie film, even like a movie like your movie, See You Next Christmas... I think you could pull off a 12-hour day and people won't be that frustrated because everyone is like working the whole time. Right. And you're not just sitting around like trying out things on other people's time. I'm hearing a lot of things I want to break down. Yes. Starting starting with the last thing. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, So I think it is important for directors, producers, all above the line people to realize that while we work on short-term projects... Right, say we're doing a commercial. That doesn't mean that your crew isn't rolling directly into something else. And so we're going to get rest. We're going to get a little bit of a turnaround or whatever. But the crew maybe doesn't, right? And it's not fair to assume that just because we're shooting for two days out of a week that they're not shooting six. So that's important, right? So Because like you were saying, like, oh, a 12-hour day where everyone's working quickly and efficiently. They're going to have a better time, certainly. You're not wrong. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, there are still, you know... And look, I look. I've shot, I've shot obscenely long days before. You know, like like this is some of this is going to be hypocritical, right? But we're talking about idealism because we're talking about a potential union strike and what we're all striving for. And I think that some of that is achievable. And also, it's the important caveat of like I don't really know what I'm talking about. Everyone, right? I'm not as educated about the specifics of what we're striking over and all of that. So yeah, but I think you know, we're talking, I'm talking about the, the personalized version of this, but, but here, here's the important point. Here's the, here's the big picture that I'm hearing from you, Orin. directors are uniquely between the two worlds of above the line and below the line. And I mean, we know we have real relationships we work with 
agency producers, executive producers, client, all those. We're out to dinner with them. We're pitching with them. We're workshopping with them. We work with them for weeks before we get to shoot. And yeah, also, and our name is on the line, even in a non-commercial thing. In the final product, it's us who gets blamed if it's bad. Right, basically. certainly. And also, we work with the same crews all the time. They're our friends. They're our peers, right? And I think that that puts us in a unique position because it is important to us that we do our best to make the best possible product and also not abuse our crews. And so there's this weird thing of like, uh, you keep describing all these things where it's like, oh, yeah, the agency wants us to shoot 16 different versions. I'm fine with that. Pay for it. Add another day. You know what I mean? Like, like if it's give us the time to, to, to have that flexibility, tack on another day. Do a pre-light the first day and do a tear down the next day and then 10 hours of shooting, no problem. It's just when you're trying to load in, shoot two spots and load out on the same day that you're overextending people. So what, what I'm hearing, Oren, is like some kind of like internalized stress uh, and capitalism of like people who don't want to spend the money and are squeezing the bottom to make it happen, right? Why, why is it that a PA has to like bust their ass so hard because an agency doesn't want to add a load-in day? Do you know what I mean? That, that's the problem that we're describing here. And so we are stuck in the middle because we understand and know these people much more than, you know, an EP who has never met them or, you know, a, a client who literally just is like, well, this is how much our budget is. This is how much money I have to spend and doesn't see the connection between the human cost and the artistic possibility. Yeah. And this domino effect of people pleasing, you know, and I think this happens in narrative stuff too. You know, I could see like a, an executive at a studio or network saying like, Hey, why don't you just get, get it three different ways so we can kind of see mm-hmm. how it feels in the sure. edit. And then yeah. the director being like, well, I don't want to lose my job. Sure. sure. I'll get it. Our livelihood depends on it. Right. And the DP saying, well, that's going to be hard, but I guess I'll do it. I don't want to lose my job. And then saying it to the gaffer, hey, can you light it th- three different ways? The gaffer's like, what? And that's going to take us like three times as long. But like everyone is, it's like these <laughs> the weird hierarchy of our business plus combined with the fact that like everyone's in fear that if they say no, they won't get hired again, that it just turns all the, you know, all the complaints <laughs> inward i don't know so anyway i i don't know how to fix it because i feel like i'm in that same situation where i tell the agency oh don't worry yeah we can get that and they're asked for can we also do this because we're worried about this and maybe this other director said that they can pull that off and they're like oh no no i we can do that for sure you know um and it's just frustrating so that's why i've been recently on a few sets where the client agency just want they just add more versions for us to shoot and I'm like, it, it, it's just like not fair, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to not, the people on set. And then either I have to compromise something and just make things just move on when I don't think we've gotten it yet because I feel for the crew and our, and the, you know, and getting things done on time. Or I have to be the jerk and be like, nope, we're going to keep doing it until mm-hmm, we get it right, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in five different ways. So yeah. anyway... Yeah. Um, well, and yeah. having insight into both, right? Like you're going to see that person on the next job and you're going to see how tired they are and you can going to, you know, hear their, you know, creaky back or whatever, or, you know, like, the, <laughs> right. the, but genuinely true 
or or never see them again because they had to quit. Right. Yeah. I do wonder if you could, as a director and on a commercial, if you feel like you would have the power to say like, hey, I want a 10-hour schedule. Like, let's figure out how to do this. And I think you hit on something really smart, which is if you get the build day and the pre-light day, then it makes you so much more powerful on the shoot day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it is all, and this is true for every type of filmmaking, it's all about that prep time and setting table, the set, setting expectations and being clear about what you can achieve with the amount of time that you have. And I'm really grateful for a lot of the producers that I work with are aware of that and, and have the audacity to push back, you know, and... So it takes a partnership and that sometimes, you know, people talk about an abundance mindset and that's kind of what you want from a producer. You don't want a producer who's worried that they're not going to be able to keep the lights on because they pushed back on an unreasonable and inhumane request, you know? And so I, I, everyone, I understand where everyone is coming from. That's, that's the plight of the director in this conversation. We are day walkers or in, we understand the light and the dark and are friends with and rely on everyone. We are nothing without both sides of that coin. And it's, um, I think maybe I'm realizing in this moment that one of the things that we can do is illuminate the human element to people who don't experience firsthand. You know, it's easy to change a number on a spreadsheet in an office, but they don't, they don't see how that affects a person. And if they did, I believe they probably would think twice on it. For sure. Well, thanks for chatting. Take care of your crews. Make sure they know why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Prepare. Show them that you're not wasting their time. Boy, it gets me worked up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And hold hold fast for a potential strike. We'll see. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, truth is, I just work on a lot of non-union stuff so i don't know how much it would affect me i think personally. it i think it can affect us yeah because i same you know but i think that we'll see how it affects the town in general yeah um okay well before we talk to diana i just want to remind people that we have a patreon patreon.com slash just shoot it pod if you want to hear us complaining about more things for the rest of your life <laughs> then you should go to our patreon and uh throw a buck or two to keep this podcast going you know the money goes to our various hosting fees our editor sarah um, hosting fees is like us putting it on the internet not oren and i who are hosts oh yeah no the fees that i charge matt in order to co-host with yeah me. yeah yeah he's not <laughs> yeah. cheap but you can't blame him no you know we spend money on all these random things you would never believe some service that lets us tweet today and it only goes up tomorrow who knows what matt's doing over there <laughs> canceling that stuff i'm <laughs> um patreon.com slash just shoot it pod and hey guess what if you give us ten dollars or more we will send you a just shoot it podcast hat the podcast is very small so like you know people don't have to know it's a podcast hat but they do know that you are gonna get shit done because you literally have just shoot it written on your head we also uh, offer it as a tattoo if you would like that. Yeah, stick and poke only though. So uh, <laughs> you got to pay for yeah. our, our ticket out there. Yep. Um, <laughs> all um, right. Okay. Just uh, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Now we'll continue with the show. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, we are here with Diana Olifirova. Hello. Does that get a pass, Diana? Yeah, She's being nice. She's being nice. Hey, what's bad? All right. That's better than I thought, actually. (laughs) And you're with us live from London, right? Yes. And is that primarily where you work? Yes, I primarily work in London. Awesome. And that's where you shot We Are Lady Parts, right? Yes, last year. Cool. Sorry, forgive me. Uh, Were you shooting during the pandemic, during COVID? Yeah. Yeah, man, they had to build all those sets. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Of course. Sorry. I read the brief a while ago. I apologize. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that, actually. We started in um, February with a more serious prep because, of course, I've read the script before that and it's all in, but we properly started in February. And in March, we had tech recce's basically on the week when everything got shut down. So <laughs> so we had to stop for the whole summer. And uh, that summer was spent lots of Zoom calls, talking over and over and over, lots of shot lists and changing their minds all the time just to go back into beginning, <laughs> you know. Sometimes you start and then you go away and then you end up where you started. And it's quite a good process, but sometimes you're like, was it worth it? <laughs> so that was like the whole summer, which was amazing. I really love talking to director about, you know, expanding the story and making it as interesting as possible. So that was a very useful time. And then we resumed in September and shot till, till November. Just a random question. Do you get paid like one while all this stuff is happening? Like, how does how does that work? 
While you're on hold, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like while you're on hold, but you're developing oh. the shot list and the script and rethinking things. Well, it was kind of like, I think the first couple of weeks we were paid anyway, because it was all uh, quite unexpected, you know, when we shut down. Um, so that was good. But otherwise, yeah, I think there was some kind of, I think my agent negotiated something afterwards just for a little kind of gesture, you know, because of course it's good to be paid for your work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird time. You know, beginning. I mean, I don't mind talking about films forever, but it's really strange. Yeah, it's also you don't know when you're gonna start start it, and you don't know if you have ever gonna shoot it. It was like the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, can we rewind a little bit, and can you tell us how uh, the job came to you, or how you found the job? Um, me and Nita, the director of the show, did the pilot for it uh, about two years before that, or a year and a half before that, and. It was a really great 15 minutes pilot. You can still find it, I think, on YouTube. And uh, that was went really well. And, you know, when they commissioned it, we kind of took back the whole team that did it because it was just really great atmosphere and experience and creativity. So that was it. Tell us a little bit more about the pilot. Was was that something, you know, that you all bootstrapped together? Did you know the director beforehand? Or what, tell us more about the pilot, actually. I'm curious. Um, actually, no, I think she got me for some interview for something else and, um, later on decided that I'll be really good for lady parts. And then she interviewed me for lady parts. And, um, yeah, I think it was kind of, we kind of hit it off from the first meeting and she realized that I can really expand her vision in a way that she maybe didn't expect, which is quite interesting. I think we kind of like when we work together, we really merge visions. It was really nice to really dig into the mind of the you know writer director because she also writes the story so it's very nice to be able to talk to someone from the very core of what they meant and i really enjoy that so i would always in all the meetings like really start asking all these difficult questions and that makes i think that also makes her very happy to know that she always has a collaborator to like explore the story together with and i think that really like hit it off from beginning and the production designer joined in as well and we really had a very strong core team yeah, so that was it, really. When you say the difficult questions, I'm curious, what type of questions are, are you meaning there? Can you give us a for instance? Is, is there a, a moment that you remember specifically? I, I don't know. Some, I just read everything. And then I, I if I don't understand something, first of all, because I'm not from this country or from this culture, I often don't understand things. And that actually sometimes I find is quite good because if people aim for more international kind of, if to release from internationally, then then... You know, it's so important that other people understand the story on a universal level, not just people from here, you know. So I would always ask, first of all, all the small questions about what does this mean, especially with, you know, Muslim culture, I didn't know anything. So I had to first learn myself and also other things I would be asking her all the time. What does this mean? What does this word mean? Why are they doing this way? You know, so it's really interesting that. But also questions like, what is this scene about? Do you need this scene? You know, why is this character behaving this way you know where did it come from what do they want what do they think do they really need to do this you know so i would kind of be bold and try to tickle all these things that sometimes they don't think about and they would write because they think about something else like sometimes the writer would write something but assume that people understand it because the background of something is in their head and i would always make sure i ask what they exactly they meant so I try to get to the very core and they'll be like, aha, I didn't mention that. I didn't bring people to that. So they have to, you know, write more basically or whatever. And I also really like 
you know, often in the scripts, some, you know, you would get someone writing something like, and it feels like this, or, and this person felt this and this. And I'm like, so how do you going to show this? How are you going to show this? This is not something we can show. So what <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly, how, how you know. How do you shoot that feeling? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's something my old teacher taught me to do. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I find that's always a pet peeve of mine as well when reading other people's writings, like, especially writers who haven't directed a ton you know like you're like oh i see you're aiming for something great but the act of actually executing it of implementing the idea sometimes isn't always on the page so i'm curious about what sort of uh pitches what sort of ideas were you bringing to like clarify something internal that you wanted to externalize right because i think that's a lot of the show has like that sort of feel and uh, philosophy behind it. What what were some of your tangible uh, practices in doing that? Uh, you know, a lot of the show is about two, two characters. I think it's one main character, Amina, who is uh, kind of trying to explore this new world and changes a lot throughout the show. But also it's about Syrah, who's a guitarist. And they both have very different styles, very different personalities. So we were really working on about trying to expand uh, how it feels to be in their world to people. And so they feel a part of it. So for example, Amina would be much more, much more smooth movements, much more brighter. Everything is much more like pastel and muted colors and beautiful kind of soft things and everything is slightly glowy and very cute. And she's um, always quite comfortable composition and everything is very civilized. <laughs> that was our aim with her. So I was trying to make it as um, obvious as possible together with costume and art and you know, the acting, of course. And then for Syrah, the guitarist, we're trying to make it so much more sharp and much more handheld. The colors will be much more contrasty, much more darker, uh, taking more risks with the movement and being there with her, being much closer to her, you know, taking lots of um, different cinematic steps to make it feel different. And then, so we started to think a lot about when they meet, when which whose scene is that and how do you like try to merge it together and, you know, really dig into like what this scene is about, who is it about and why are we shooting it this way or that way. So there was a lot of conversations about this kind of language of two main characters and how do you split it or combine it. And depending on what they wanted to achieve with each scene, we would go one or another way. And it's also applying to everything, lighting, composition, the movement. The, the, whole, the whole film language, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. I feel like when we have cinematographers on the show, we get to have these conversations much more explicitly than we do with directors. And I think it just because I think our line of questioning tends to like just veer off in different directions. But I love the conversation about whose scene it is, because I think that sometimes I'll have like uh, conceptual ideas about about a scene or about, about a character or something like that, like you were describing with Amina and Sira. But then in practicality, sometimes like the logistics of shooting or just like the, those questions of like, well, now that they're both in the scene, how do we make that decision can cause things to sort of unravel a little bit. But so like you were saying, asking the hard questions of, you know, uh, whose scene is it? Why are we shooting it this way? Kind of helps sort of guide that philosophy a little yeah, bit Yeah, and more. sometimes, you know, some scenes are not that important as other scenes, and you can just let it be a little bit more objective, for example, and you start seeing everyone from the side and looking at them a different way, you know? So you have these key scenes that are important to convey in different 
feeling, but that is also nice to have some seeds that are slightly more general and also let you breathe a little bit and don't stress you too much. Sometimes, especially in such a fast paced show, I think it's important to have something a little bit more balanced in, in between as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it, it is. Sometimes, look, a character just needs to get on the bus, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a complicated. Um, I'm, I'm, curi- I'm curious about the, you said that, you know, one character is much sharper and the, and the other character is much kind of bloomier, brighter, softer. Did you use the same lenses to shoot them? Or how did you achieve sharper versus softer? Yeah, we'd use the same lenses. I think it's more about the lighting in this one. And maybe also in terms of choosing this, it was the same make of lenses, but could be different uh, type. So I would use more wider lenses for Syrah and go closer to get a bit more world in her view around her and have it more sharper so it's different f-stop and also with a wider lens you have more sharpness throughout the image more depth of field uh and then with the i mean now we could go a little bit more portrait classic portrait lenses much softer background slightly more open um f-stop and yeah it's more about the lighting i think in a way on the other show i did after that i actually experimented much more with the difference between different episodes i tried to do different filters so i go softer as we move in and that was like wow that was that that was scary because i had so many different episodes and sometimes we shoot the same uh, many in one day <laughs> and i'll be like which filter is it now ah i forgot <laughs> it's really hard to keep a track so i don't know if i do it again maybe it's easier to do in post but um it was an interesting tr- try as well i think I, I like to experiment every time you know never you have some kind of interesting contrast between something and you try to use different tools it's nice to really you know embrace it and be bold i think because to be honest in the end of the day not that many people even notice it it's such a in the long form it's such a different sure. beast it's not it's something that you like every shot is different say. yeah yeah and some shots that you think are so important they know they're not very important <laughs> yeah oh sure yeah every right. every single shoot there's something where you're like if we don't get this right the whole thing is ruined and i'm walking this is terrible what well, i can't believe they won't let me do this and then you're like, oh, yeah, it was, it's, it's a, this two shot works fine. Yeah. Yeah. And especially it's like at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You make this whole plan and then you're like, OK, we're going to shoot her on wide, wide lenses, her on tight lenses and everything. And then you go and you're like, oh, actually, this actor probably looks better on the tight lenses. This actor, <laughs> yeah. right? Like at some or, point. Or the set is too small. In. Right. You're yeah. like, oh, with all these telephoto shots, uh, the room is actually pretty shallow. So, uh well, yeah, I know. Actually, fine. I have a question about about that, about the production design and how, you know, you were talking about colors and pastels versus kind of more contrasty colors and things. How do you communicate with a production designer? Because, it, you know, this is such a colorful show. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and Nita, the director, and how the production designer who's building the sets all kind of coordinate on this? And then, you know, we don't want to get too deep into COVID just because... We're hoping that COVID, you know, ends at some point and we all go back to normal and this becomes not interesting to anyone. But I am curious how that like if ventilation or set sizes or screw size also affected how the sets were built. I think we had we had like a color palette from the very beginning, so I could see it and deepen and out of it. And um, that was established between Nida production designer Simon Walker and costume designer PC Williams. And uh, I kind of like... We had a lot of locations that we filmed in a pilot, 
that we wanted to use in the show, but then it, because of COVID, we had to build them, you know, because we didn't want to shoot in the small spaces uh, in the middle of uh, London. And so they kind of took inspiration a lot from those spaces and using those original colors because we just really embraced it, you know, the, the randomness of it, like the butchers. It was actually a real location, exactly how we had the set. It was so green and horrible, <laughs> but we loved it. So it was a lot of that kind of like, I looked at those colors, but I, I also like colors myself a lot. I would kind of like de sometimes deviate from it. You know, I would kind of embrace what's already in there and then try to add my own little hints of different colors and the lights because I like to make it slightly random, kind of, you know, embracing the imperfection, I think, especially when you have a studio set. It's important to have the not all the lights the same. You kind of add a little bit of green there, add a bit of yellow there, have a little bit of dirt on there, turn that one off, twist that one other way around, you know. So just really play with that. And I try to like really like do that a lot in everything. And then whatever you feel like, you know, I try to really feel the image and the, the the set. And if it feels right, it's right for me. Like, I just really try to, like, not over, don't make it too scientific, you know. So that's my approach for the colors a lot. And I would also often order a bunch of gels. I really like gels and old school, like, tungsten lights. Uh, I do like LEDs as well, but I love gels because you can just look at them. And um, I would, like, order a bunch of gels. Just partly like because I like how they cold and partly because I like <laughs> how they look. And uh, then when we bring them on set, I'll just like experiment, put some on, took some off. You know, sometimes you put the random ones on. So that's also was part of it. Kind of I used some of the gels from the palette and some just because I was like, oh, that sounds fun. That silver. Let's try silver. Why not? <laughs> so that was kind of my approach a little bit. Sometimes I even rip apart a couple of gels, put them together and I'll try that. Uh, also partly because it makes it a little bit more fun for everyone and it's a bit of a joke and uh, people get to relax and laugh and it's, we remind each other it's not that serious sometimes, you know. I like that as well. <laughs> and I also really like uh, Bounce with the golden and yeah, silver. I, I love that. Basically, I love it so much that every production ends up uh, getting me one as a gift in the end. So this is the one from Lady Parts. <laughs> I, it's called Elvis. Wait, so what, what do you use those bounces for? To, for eyes, for eyelights, for faces, for where do yeah, you use those bounces? It's mainly for the, you know, for fun. <laughs> for fun. For eyelight. So, like, for example, in the set where the, the girls are rehearsing, we would put it underneath. Yeah, because I think the, the gold and silver, the Elvis, is nice for skin tones, too, right? Like, sometimes if it's just silver or white... You know, people get a tiny bit washed out, so the gold yeah. kind of warms them up a little bit. I think that's really definitely, cool. yeah, I love it. Yeah, and yeah, oh my god, in the last show, tones. they they got me a twelve by twelve in in Elvis, and I love it. <laughs> it was my favorite day. <laughs> I was all over it. I just like like um, fun stuff. I think um, you know, lots of people are sometimes a bit like put away by these things because they're a bit too obvious. Sometimes you know, it's like oh, it's too much. But sometimes I feel like lots of people just don't actually notice things. And uh, if you don't think about it that way, there's like too much because of what it is. It gives you a lot of freedom and to be bold. And I like it. And uh, that's what I really like about the director of the show, Nida. She really likes to like be bold and, you know, bring, you know, go for it, go for all the crazy ideas and just like push for it. And I think that's something is that I really respect. Uh, not that many directors are happy to just let let things happen and just push for something that 
never been done before or like think outside the box or like embrace all the crazy ideas that you just like sometimes I just speak different ideas that come from nothing and they just sometimes we're like okay what about this and I'm like it's a bit crazy but what about this and you know there are some directors would be like oh no 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 but Nida will sometimes be like yeah let's do this <laughs> you want to do this you want to shoot this like this let's do it and she gives me a lot of freedom that way and a lot of inspiration and yeah I love that well, do you guys shoot a lot of coverage? Like, I guess to me as a director, it's like I'm excited to go bold and take big risks if we have like some coverage just in case it doesn't work, you know, when we're in the edit bay. What's your um, attitude on that? I, I agree. I mean, I like coverage as well, and especially with comedy, it's quite important. But some scenes we decided to shoot in one in one shot and uh, steady come. There's one scene where it's called Parlay. Well, the girls are figuring out the social media situation. And it's like a one long steady come shot around the table. We come in with Syrah and they're like against her and we talk and they talk and talk and we move around, move around, move around. And on the day, we actually had it planned to be shot quite a normal coverage. But um, when we rehearsed the scene, it just really felt like we wanted to have that constant movement. And uh, after the rehearsal, I came to Nida and I said, listen, I think, you know what? And she's like, what, steady come? I was like, yes. <laughs> We really synced on it. It was really great. Um, and I love that. Like, you know, we, so we decided to do it and we did it all in one. But then, of course, we were missing some of the people talking and the script supervisor really helped us to like say, she was like, okay, you need to pick up this line from this side and pick up this line from this side. And we kind of finished it that way. And it took the same amount of time if we would do it normally. We just um, had an, about an hour and a half rehearsing it. <laughs> but but we covered it uh, after we've done it. You know, we've done 360 lighting, so it's already lit. You don't need to do anything because it's everywhere. And we just could just really quickly pick up whatever we were missing. That was really great. Uh, sometimes, we you know, we would go for things like that quite often. But, of course, if we needed some coverage, we would add as well. But Nina was quite happy with the whites, and she really likes uh, using the space uh, to tell the story as well. So often we would do quite nice white and maybe some knit, and she'll be like, I'm happy I don't need that. Very um, confident about that. That was great as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I, I feel like what I'm getting from you is like the show has a very open approach to ideas, which is really wonderful. and. You know, I, I feel like I, well, especially on sets, I oftentimes feel unsatisfied because I have a hard time figuring out what's missing from it, what makes it feel inauthentic. You know, if you look at any little piece, you know, um, everything kind of looks right, but it, somehow when you add it all up, it doesn't uh, s sum up to the thing that you're trying to approximate. And so I loved what you were saying about adding a little bit of randomness. And I think that maybe that is a spirit that is kind of following through the whole thing, right? The ability to improvise, the ability to say, hey, what if we just did, you know, this is a one or with a few pickups, I think is a really, you know, it's a, it's like an indie film sort of mentality, but with the openness of not taking it too seriously, you know, like the seriousness is the thing that I think that a there's a certain type of filmmaker that like, they're like, this is a real show. This is a real TV show. We have to do it right. And that's true. You do have to do it right, quote unquote. But right doesn't mean the way you've seen it a million times before, necessarily, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it was so strange because it was our both of us first show. So we, it was really stressful. But at the same time, we somehow managed to keep that like, fuck it. You know, if we kind of achieved that pilot 
and they love the style of it, we should just continue with the same approach and same feeling and don't take it too seriously. And I think that's what really helped as well. You know, I'm also noticing Channel 4, Peacock, Australia Stan and New Zealand Sky are all at least distributors or production companies. Was there one single studio who had oversight? Was there an executive who was like, make sure you get a clean single? Or was it because it was across, because it was so international, maybe there wasn't one person in charge? Yeah, I don't know. We always heard quite good feedback. And I never really, right, yeah, I never really wondered much, but uh, it was really good feedback in general. So it was kind of like, let us even be bolder when we were going for more things. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the in America, it says that it's a Peacock original. Mm-hmm. Is it, was Peacock involved in the production? Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. But I'm not sure exactly because I was so, so they had to there's so many the different companies, different people. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to my director, <laughs> production mm-hmm. producer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If they talk about my land choices or something, maybe then I'll get involved. Diana, as soon as a studio executive tells you what lens to use, uh, you let me know because I can't. Wait <laughs> that conversation. Yeah, what do you mean? I'm sure they. I'm we sure they did give notes have, on that stuff all the time. We did like, have conversation about this. We want yeah. to make big. Yeah, we did have conversation, but it was for pilot. So actually, after we proved the pilot, it was easier to prove whatever else, you know? So um, it was a conversation about anamorphic lenses and using the 235 aspect ratio, which is like, was a big deal, I think, for us to push, especially on this kind of show. But we really, like, I think me and Nida were really together protecting that. Uh, and that really helped because it was just me and Derek didn't care. I don't think I would have won that, you know? But it was really nice to just be able to uh, push our vision because we both like that format. And we thought, you know, for like multiple characters in one frame, it's much better to have wide aspect ratio and so on. So there was there was that behind it. So that, that helped. <laughs> which which lenses did you use? Uh, for the show, we used Cook Anamorphic. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess comedy a lot of times, especially on TV, they would push you away from anamorphic. But yeah. Looks great. I'm, <laughs> Thank you. I'm curious, like something that I, I noticed, and Matt, I'm sure you noticed, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion on it, Dan, is like, I feel like when I see European stuff, TV, it just looks different than American TV. Would you agree with that? And do you, do you, if you do, then is there a reason why? To me, there's just like so much more texture color like i don't know just like a a permission to be a little more naturally dirty i guess in like europe and there's the one show that does shoot in europe that looks very much like an american show is ted lasso i watch that show and i'm like even though this the cinematographers are british it looks like an american show it's so crisp and bright and kind of clean like a lot of white walls and stuff Mm -hmm. but then you look at kind of your separation and stuff yeah yeah, your traditional kind of European stuff. And like, I think We Are Lady Parts is this great example. Even though it's a comedy, it, it feels like so cinematic, you know? Um, Get what, some grittiness in it. That? Or is that not something that you think about? I think I have to say, I don't watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's where all the cool kids seen, are now, right? I have this TV and I've never watched it. I have this TV and I've never watched it. Ever, um, I know <laughs> this is Wait, crazy. So do you only go, you only go to the theater. I go to cinema once a week, 
but I don't really like. It's not my thing, like watching. I like doing films. Um, watching is enjoyable, and I like it for experience. And of course, I pick up lots of technical stuff, and I go to all the Q and As. But mainly because I like people, and I like listening to people. I go to filmmaking festivals and Camry Marsh, and I talk to them all the time. You know, get all the energy, ask all the questions. You know, watch the films, get inspired. But for me, it's like I would never like spend an evening watching some show. I don't think I just because I like to experience life and do things. So for, for yeah, so I find it really hard. <laughs> if somebody sends something as a reference, I always watch it, of course, and do all the you know studying. Uh, but uh, yeah, as a passing time thing, I don't do that much. Which is uh, people say that it's like really bad, but uh, I don't like pushing myself doing things I don't like. So there you go. <laughs> so far, I had no complaints, uh, Wait, so but not seen do, something. What did you do last night? What do you do at night if you don't watch stuff? What did I do last night? I think I did watch a film last night. I went to see uh, Annette. Oh, did you like it? Yeah, I did in cinema. Yeah, it was good. What, what's What's funny about that? That Annette is a is an Amazon movie. You could watch that at home for sure. I, no, I love that you no go home. to the cinema. No home. Sure. Yeah, but can you watch no that at home, home in London? <laughs> it's just I mean, the it's so boring. You watch things example, at the, right? at the home. <laughs> no, I go cinema, get the popcorn, have some people around me. Maybe invite friends, and it's so nice. This like uh, Again, also because it's so I, you don't uh, attention. It's just it. one way, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I know a good number of cinematographers who are similar in that way. That like love watching movies, but like aren't cinephile. They're not binging movies all the time um, because also the lifestyle is such where like you're shooting. You know, like if you're on set a lot, it's like. You know, it's uh, exhausting. So, like the idea of watching, watching another monitor. Spent, you know, <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, I didn't actually come into this industry through love of movies, to be honest. Uh, so I, I haven't seen much in past either. So that's why my knowledge of films is not that good. Uh, but at the same time, you know. People often come to me with lots of references and like ideas that are coming from specific things specific scene or something and I always come from the ideas from like looking at things and studying it studying the actor and then and then kind of like thinking about the movement from the core of the scene rather than trying to reference something that I've seen before or, or new that can maybe involve you know that can maybe um, change my way of looking at things so I try to keep it pure sometimes in that sense you know don't overthink it don't, don't over reference things sometimes I think it's so nice to be fresh yeah, yeah, you 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 won't be um, repeating someone else's work that way, right? I, I'm curious, what did you? Um, what was your background? What did, where did you come from? Like, what's the what's the discipline that brought you to filmmaking? I always wanted to be a photographer, and uh, in Ukraine there was no photography education, and my parents wanted me to study in university. So I was like, okay, what's closest to photography? I guess filmmaking. So then there was this really hard, complicated cinematography course, which involved lots of darkroom printing studying photography and composition for years <laughs> and I was like great I can do more photography and then somehow got sucked in into all the experiments with the moving image and we did a lot of black and white uh, films uh, we had like a film lab in the school as well which was really cool and um, I've, I've got sucked in into experimenting with the medium and that's what I always like doing multi-exposure and trying to do interesting hidden cuts and how to like trick Things. So that really made me excited about exploring the, 
this still image within the movement. And then I also realized there's also an extra challenge that in film, you have to make sure that the audience puts all their attention to one spot in the frame that is the most important for you, but you only have a limited amount of time to get that to happen. So you have to be very precise. And that's a very cool challenge that I really like to like really push that attention to one space in the image because it's going to keep moving and people have to keep following. Like in photography, you can do a shot that, you know, people can look for a long time. So you have to really think about lots of things and how the eye is going to move. But in film, I think it's, it's kind of a bit of a shift of the challenge, which I also quite enjoy. So that got me into that. I'm curious about that. I think that's awesome. Uh, I'm really curious, like what your strategies are to get people to look in the right place. And how are you thinking about the edit as well when you're filming things? Because obviously, if someone was looking somewhere else in the frame in the previous shot, and then somebody cut here real quick, like, as a cinematographer, you don't necessarily know when this piece of footage will be used. Like, what are some of the things that you do to make sure people are looking at the right thing or focused on the right thing? I do think about the edit actually all the time. And I think the eye lines are kind of automatically in my brain, <laughs> which is quite interesting because I do like to cross the eye lines, but depending on directors, some directors don't like that. So sometimes we plot the scene and I'll be like, by the way, there is a cross of the eye line. And they'll be like, oh no. <laughs> but uh, we really talk a lot with director about storyboards and uh, sorry, shot list and maybe storyboards if needed. And I, uh, we really like to break it down to the core and spend time thinking about it again, you know, starting from what the scene is about, who is it about, are we subjective or objective with the character, and what emotion do we want to convey, and then you really break it down, and then on set, of course, it all changes again, and you break it down again, and then, you know, when you feel like you had enough footage, you can just move on, but it, every time is so different, and sometimes you just don't know, and uh, I would always suggest things if I feel like something is missing, uh, to director to add. So that that's something I, I like to do a lot, kind of like make sure that in my head, the scene makes sense and it's completed because, you know, I, I feel like quite often I, I say things that way as well. But um, in terms of bringing the eye to the particular point in shot is also kind of a mix of everything, the lighting, the lenses, choices, the angles and the movement and the focus and, you know, all the floating parts of the image and the art department is so important for me. I always like make sure the standby art director is always there. Like they, they are the first person I learned the name of because I think I talk to them the most. <laughs> People always like, remove this thing. Can you move that thing out? That thing, Cause it's just so important to be clean that everything is just precise, you know? And that's also interesting because I think by way of constructing the composition is very clean and precise, but then the lighting and the colors can be a bit more floating add some extra magic. And I like to embrace random accidents that happen, like something is not quite right, but I'm like, okay, let's just leave it because there's something about it that feels interesting. And, you know, so there's a mix of very precise kind of frame making, and then also a little bit of something that just happened. And uh, I think that way you keep the audience focused on the thing that you want, but also add some interest to it. Yeah. Cool. When you're like working on the sets, when you guys are building sets, you can in theory, put like lights anywhere you want, right? You can build them into the set and put windows, places. Like how involved in that are you? And like, do you have any like philosophies on like lights and practicals and how how to design a set in a way that like naturally looks great on camera? Um, yeah, that's interesting because we had a great set, but sometimes shot it not against the windows, but the other way around. And I was really grumpy about it. <laughs> 
but then it, uh, it was too late to cha change it. And I was like, oh my God, next time I'm doing this kind of thing, I will never build the world, like the main, never let them build the main part of the set away from the windows because it's just so hard. Uh, well, we ended up doing well because I had, I put, we had a mirror and I would make sure the window is reflecting the mirror and there is a bit of a light highlight on the wall that's from the sun. So it has a little bit depth, but it was just hell. Uh, there's like lots of scenes in the, Amina's bedroom and they're facing against the wall. <laughs> There's a big challenge. To be honest, I always embrace the challenge and I'm like, okay, let's go for this end goal. Let's just make it look as, as good as possible. But I, of course, I always be like, but look, this way it looks so great. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you just can't go against the action because the action of her going to the wardrobe and opening it and you can't shoot it from the other side because the wardrobe is right next to the wall. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I think you learn as you go, you know, I kind of like I've realized that I didn't analyze enough when I was prepping. So I could have done better, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of lessons on those those big set builds. I was going to say, as a director, every set build I've ever had, someone is mad at me about it. If the DP is like, you put in the, the windows in the exact right spot, the production designer is like, yeah, my, my guys were up overnight putting these windows in. Are you sure you need them there? And like now this this other window, this other area isn't dressed because we didn't have time. Aww. So I feel like someday everyone will be like, this set is perfect. <laughs> Something I learned from this DP I work with a lot is that he would always, I would complain about the lighting and he would say, well, it's because you gave me a set that has like zero lighting built into it. And we're trying to light with, you know, no motivation and there's no windows, there's no anything. And it's like, this was a few years ago. It just kind of like changed the whole way I think about the marriage between production design and lighting and how important that is. And I just worked on this set with this. I think I told this story before, but the the cinematographer was Greg Frazier, you know, who filmed like these giant movies. And he used almost, it was like 90% practical lights on the set. Like he had two tubes and everything else was just like lights that were in the scene. And I was just amazed by like, oh, wow, the, because the art department, when the art department does such an amazing job thinking about lighting, the cinematographer can embrace it and not have to work so hard to rethink how the lighting is you know, working in the space. I guess I've been, been thinking a lot about that. And anytime I talk to a production designer, it's so important. Yeah. There's um, also like, I mean, this production designer, Simon, was so passionate about practicals and I had so much choice. I was like, oh my God, I love this and I love this and I love this. And I, love this. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to turn them all on and it's going to be like 10 practicals in my room. It's impossible, but then why not? So we did that. And, you know, <laughs> like, like if you want to have them all, why not have them all? You know, sometimes you can also disguise some of them and they're doing this little highlights that you can really like embrace and it's quite interesting and you know what i thought in my room i mean i'm a cinematographer so it's crazy but in my room i have like 10 practicals so those people could also maybe have 10 practicals <laughs> but also another thing i thought about was using mirrors i used a lot of mirrors and i was like always embracing it mm -hmm. i love i love that because i feel like sometimes people get a little cranky about mirrors because they do make things a touch more complicated but they do add a level of depth that I think is really exciting. Yeah, especially when you're shooting against the other wall. The random mirror can also reflect something bright behind you and does an extra job for you. I'm curious, like, what are what are some of the biggest things you learned 
from making the TV show, like from making Lady Parts? Ooh, that's so hard. There were so many learnings. Also, it was my first experience on managing the crew for so long. Like I usually do commercials or short films or music videos. So always like at least maybe maximum a week or so or two weeks. And this was quite a long process, you know, we had uh, many shooting days and it was very interesting to see the relationship developing and how, you know, it's important to like, always talk to everyone, make sure everybody is on the same page and you like really anticipate things. So I've learned a lot about how to manage the crew better and how to plan things better. And also I've learned a lot of things that I have to do as a head of department, because I actually, it's also like you kind of learn on the job. You never really know how to do it until you do it. And you really understand all the complications of like every you know, every setup or every idea that is going to have to go through lots of people have to talk all the other things together and make sure that everybody's inspired and on the same kind of um, state of mind as you are. So that was really quite interesting. And yeah, so it, it was like a really long learning. Like, for example, I've learned, I think it's also about communication. So a lot of things I would be like kind of talking about to someone, but I wouldn't, for example, follow up later on or like, make sure that they um, understood, for example, some kind of grip setup or some, we wanted to do this top shot from this position and do that and that. And, um, you know, because it's so technical, it's very important to be very precise. And um, sometimes I would be just like, okay, you know, I assume this is all gonna happen, but then you just need to make sure that you kind of triple check everything all the time and keep coming back to it. Because, you know, by nature on such a long process and everything is, keeps changing all the time, scripts, keeps adjusting the scheduled moves so it's just important that you like keep like pinning okay this we still we still have this right we still have you know so of course everybody everybody's working hard and doing everything and noting everything but i think it's just important to like for this super key things that you really want to get to make sure you have them always on your mind and in your little kind of notification box that you need to check that this is happening so i felt like this was quite important but in general, I felt like it's also nice to trust the crew. Was there anything about scheduling? For instance, I think when you're shooting so many episodes of a show on all these different sets, like maybe you're trying to get like the most important things at the beginning of the day or the biggest setups at the beginning of the day or like moving shots or why let's do wide stuff first. Like how, what's your philosophy on like scheduling the day from a cinematography point of view? Oh, yeah. The other thing I've learned based on that actually question is the let go of some things as well. They're not that important because you start the show from like full on and trying to protect every single shot as I always do. But then halfway through, you're just like, Oh, I'm a bit tired. <laughs> I think you just need to make sure that you don't spread yourself thin and you really focus on this is important. This is not that important. It's very important. It's not that. And make sure that um, you surround yourself by the crew that always like make sure that you will not drop things that are important but also, you know, equally kind of excited about everything. And you just like keep each other in check and always excited about, you know, everything coming up. So, yeah, I, I we always try to put the wide shots in the beginning of the scene and develop from there and see what you need. Because sometimes the wide shot can be with some movement that develops into mid, so then you don't need that much coverage extra. So that was always a good idea to start from. And uh, we did try to shoot more or less in the order, but we also, you know, because of COVID complications, there was like such a, yeah, as you asked me about the COVID thing as well, the sets had to be slightly bigger. Not all the crew was allowed on sets and it was a, a limited uh, crew. And we had like, uh, everybody had their own iPads with the QTake system to look um, 
at the monitor rather than one monitor for all. So that was also sometimes not very, you know, as good as those things are, sometimes they just don't sync. So sometimes it's like, ah, oh. so, you know, some things would add extra complications and stuff. And we had to have like uh, the way of walking around set had to be one way system and lots of other things. So that was a fun thing to have on your first show. <laughs> All this extra rules. <laughs> yeah, all that extra stuff. Uh, on that front, you know, we've talked to a lot of people, and Oren and I have shot pretty pretty regularly through COVID, but on shorter term things. And you were talking about like this being that longer term kind of epic project. Uh, there's a lot of bonding that occurs. There's a lot of fun that occurs on a on a show like that. You know, it's like making a feature or something. You know, there's just like you're in the trenches with people. You're 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 real buddies. Did the covid stuff prevent any of that fun from happening you know where you guys like like I, I guess it just feels like a downer do you know what i mean <laughs> i mean especially with masks like you don't mm-hmm. even know what people look like sometimes yeah yeah like you yeah. see someone like take their mask off to take a sip of water and you're like oh, oh that person <laughs> has a big nose i did not expect that <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> do, do you, you do you feel like the the crew bonded still yeah i mean um not really, no. I feel like it was quite sad, actually, about this. Like, we had even our lunch breaks, we were, like, all set separately, uh, one table per person, lots of plastic around us, which looked very surreal and sci-fi, and I loved it. But also, I was like, oh, it's so sad we can't sit at the same table. Uh, but, you know, the rules are the rules. But, yeah, we only went out, like, I think twice or three times throughout the whole thing. So, and it was, like, very small amount of people having one drink after, like, some day and that's it then kind of run away so it just felt quite uh in that sense it wasn't very bonded at all yeah (laughs) yeah what do you have coming up next i'm doing a final block of an hbo show at the moment it's called the baby so that's really cool it's an original so you went now you pretty much you did one tv show and now everyone wants you (laughs) it's a horror show i see yeah yeah it is yeah yeah, and I really like I get to different genres. I'm getting dipped into different languages as well, and I learn so much and, you know, the references. So that's very nice, and I really enjoy the variety of things. But also equally, it was really nice after a long form to dip into some commercials and have some, you know, time when you, like, realize that, oh, it's actually, you know, sometimes you can just have fun focusing on one shot or one scene and you don't need to think about what you should in two weeks on that location because you can't afford the drone anymore oh <laughs> things like that you don't have to think so much in advance and keep changing things and you can really enjoy the moment and the day so that's something that i really like on commercials is like a pure focus on the image and the craft sometimes so it's just nice but yeah i like to mix it up i find i'm my happiest when i can bounce between things like that when you get to do something long form, something more narrative driven, and then do a couple quick shots of uh, commercials. That's the dream. That's the goal. That's the sweet spot. Yeah. Happiness comes from doing the opposite of what you just did. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what I had yeah, to, exactly. just be- in between these two. I was like that. I was like, jumped into some commercials, like, yay. And then two weeks later, I was like, you know what? I'm a bit bored of this now. <laughs> now I got the show. Great. <laughs> wow. You're living the dream life. Diana. Um, well, very cool. So are you are you cool to hang out with us to do an unpaid endorsement? Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. 
My endorsement is something that I am kind of stealing from Diana because she mentioned it. And I don't have a ton of experience with it, but I have a little bit. And it is Q-Take. You know, it's this system that uh, on set, anyone with an iPad or uh, iPhone or whatever, some sort of device can connect and see what the shot is. They can see on their device what's going on. I think it became, it's probably been popular for a while, but I think it became really popular with COVID because um, we're trying to share monitors less than we used to have like 50 people around one monitor. Now it's like, hey, you can all just through Qtake um, see the shot. So I worked on a set recently that we were using it on. But um, the more interesting thing is I was dropping my daughter off at kindergarten a couple days ago. And one of her friend's dads was there. Actually, a previous guest on our show, Micah Fitzerman Blue. And he is producing a show right now for Netflix that is shooting in Canada. And he... So he's been in Canada for a couple months, but he came back to visit his family because... If you live in America and you go to Canada, you have to quarantine. It's this whole thing. So it's like really hard to kind of bounce back and forth a lot. Um, anyway, but when he was, we were just outside the school, he was like, hey, check this out. And he just brought up Qtake on his phone. And we were just here in LA looking at, you know, the two cameras in Canada, just looking at the shots they were doing. He's like, check this out. I can give him a note right now about this shot. Is it, how That's cool is that? That's pretty incredible. You should be like, oh, I don't like this. Just see what <laughs> yeah. they do. Yeah. So it's cool because like literally you can just be like on a 5G connection on your phone and see um, see what the camera is seeing from all over the world. So Q-Take, check it out. Uh, I have zero idea about how expensive it is. Okay. I want to endorse something I do actually, which is a bit different. Uh, you know, pandemic really helped me to discover this actually because I was uh, spending a summer in a commune in France and... Um, everybody would do something to like kind of make experience more interesting to workshops and things. And I've discovered because I really like exercising during last year, I've been started doing lots of online workouts. So I'd follow lots of people and do them. And then when I was in that commune, we all were trying to do them together because it was like 20 people and, you know, at lunch, everybody wants to exercise. And then I've realized, you know, why not? I can try running them myself. So I started running the workouts and it turns out I'm a really good trainer. <laughs> so everybody loved them. They're coming back for more. So it just became a thing. And I've decided to start my own online workouts. I actually went to, uh, to get myself a qualification so I can be a, a gym instructor now <laughs> if I want to. <laughs> but I just wanted to learn how to like be a bit more like, you know, understanding about what people need and things like that and know all the like body parts and muscles. So yeah, I started my own Instagram online workouts and I do them on the weekends and whenever I can between the shoots and it's called DDSM Fitness. <laughs> so it's a bit of a play of the words and my nickname DD <laughs> and it's about workouts being very hard but satisfying. So there you go. Check it out. <laughs> very cool. Oh, nice. My wife also uh, discovered she's a a Pilates instructor. I mean, she's an actor, but she got so into Pilates and enjoyed it so much that she teaches Pilates now uh, on oh, Zoom nice. and in person. So I yeah, get it. I find it really nice. I and like also, I started doing <laughs> got a lot of people very healthy. Yeah, but also I started doing a bit more focused on um, you know what operators are going through or what people on set are going through and I started implementing using sandbags 
So I have a couple of RE sandbags here and I show exercises with them trying to train stability. So it's really useful, hopefully, for everyone who works on set specifically. Well, my unpaid endorsement, Oren, stop me if I've talked about this before. Mine is, you guys, it's so boring compared to yours. But uh, have you guys used the Binax now at-home COVID tests? You can get it. Yes, man. Every day. Have we talked about this on the show? Uh, no, I don't think we have. But we but we did get them. So Oren and I, yeah, DD, I'm sure you can relate. You do a lot of travel jobs, right? Commercials, you're kind of flying all over the place and all this stuff. You know, so your your exposure levels are higher than I, you know, I would like. And so these Binax now, that's twenty three dollars. You get two tests in them, um, and they are great for two things that I think are specific to filmmaking, besides just being paranoid. So basically, I'll get like a, a pack if I've like been on the plane or something like that, and I just kind of like for peace of mind. A couple of days later, I'll go ahead and take one, or if I'm feeling weird or whatever. Um, but the the bigger thing. I think for indie film productions, if you've been dreaming of shooting that short film or that spec or even that indie feature or whatever, it had been really cost prohibitive before to uh, have like a COVID officer and like onset testing and all of that stuff can be pretty gnarly. And so uh, these these home kits are fairly accurate and pretty straightforward and that you get your results in 15 minutes. And so like if you were if you're dreaming of doing that like indie scrappy shoot and you're like, ah, but I want to make sure that I'm keeping everybody safe. These are like a totally um, straightforward and affordable way to to make your short film um, in the time of a pandemic. So the Binax now uh, antigen self-test at home kits are the ones I've used, but I'm sure there's probably competitors out there as well. Didi, thanks so much for hanging out with us. How can uh, listeners uh, keep track of you, learn more about you, keep up to date on all of your upcoming awesome projects? Do you have a website? Do you tweet? To my Instagram? Agent. <laughs> <laughs> sure. There we go. Um, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I do have a website, dianaolivierova.com, and I am very active on Instagram. I put lots of strange stories and stuff. Um, yeah. And I like to share lots of photographs and random stuff as well. So I don't only focus on my work. What's your name on Instagram? Uh, Diana Olifirova. Diana Olifirova. Oh, it's Olifirova. D-O-P. Yeah, sorry. I always forget that. I can't change it. I actually wanted to put my name there. Nothing else. But anyway, can't change it anymore. If you want to check out all the stuff that we've talked about and even maybe get a link to her website, you can go to justshootitpod.com to check out all of the stuff that we talked about. And you can follow us across all social media at Just Shooteth Pod. Go ahead and drop us a line. Ask us a question. If you have a longer question, you can uh, email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on all social media at Mr. Matt Enlo. And you can follow me. I'm on Twitter at, at SmiteyPileg. I'm on everything else at O'Kaplan. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Email us. Tweet at us. Uh, rate us on iTunes and all that stuff. Um, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.